Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to focus on the Quintet in E-flat, Opus 16, for piano, oboe, clarinet, horn, and bassoon, assumed to have been composed in 1796-1797. Beethoven had composed other works for winds, of course, for example the trio in C major for two oboes and English horn, probably composed in 1794 or 1795, but not published until years later as Opus 87. It was not unusual for Beethoven to hold off on publishing works he considered occasional or in a lighter style. Another such example is the sextet in E-flat major for two clarinets, two bassoons, and two horns, composed in 1796, but again published quite a bit later as Opus 71. In a slightly different category is the trio in B-flat major for clarinet or violin, cello, and piano, composed in 1797 and published soon after as Opus 11. It was supplied with an alternative violin part to replace the clarinet, presumably to boost sales, but although similar in some respects to his earlier piano trios, it was in general a much lighter affair. Of course, chamber works featuring wind instruments were in general more often seen as lighter or social works than those featuring strings, probably by association with earlier 18th-century serenades and divertimenti and music specifically composed for outdoor entertainment activities, where the winds would presumably carry better than the more dignified string instruments. Of course, not all divertimenti put the focus on winds, certainly not all of Mozart's, but the association between ensembles of wind instruments and the lighter entertainment style was reasonably widespread. Some of the slightly more modest aristocratic houses in Vienna were known to carry small bands of wind players specifically for the purpose of providing what at times amounted to no more than background music. Beethoven's Quintet in E-flat, Op. 16, has been widely assumed to have been modeled after Mozart's Quintet with the same instrumentation, Kirschel 452, written several years earlier in 1784. That work had not been published when Beethoven began work on his quintet, but it is generally assumed that he was able to secure a score for Mozart's composition through a common friend. Nevertheless, there is some disagreement as to the extent that actual modeling took place. Some historians have noted some similarities in terms of motives and melodic shapes between the two works, while others have claimed that there are a few specific or meaningful similarities. The first movement begins with a long introduction marked grave in 4-4 time. Although it begins softly, the opening motive is fairly severe, consisting of a double-dotted rhythm figure, double-dotted eighths followed by 30-second notes, moving rather sternly up the E-flat major triad in unisons and octaves. This initial idea is followed quickly by an offbeat sforzando and descending scale fragment, itself followed by a pianistic swirl of an arpeggio on the dominant seventh chord, which leads us to our next and much more lyrical idea played by the pianist, a swelling and then diminishing phrase which briefly and unexpectedly pauses on a C minor chord, the submedian chord in the key, before some passing chromaticism points us back in the direction of E-flat.
that passing chromaticism, which occurs twice, lends an almost yearning quality to the phrase, very much in contrast to the severity of the opening gesture. Angus Watson, in his book on Beethoven chamber music, perceptively sees this alternation of severe triadic figures with more poignant lyrical phrases as a key element in the introduction, one that is played out in a number of ways in the Allegro section as well. The introduction proceeds in this fashion for several measures, the piano and wind instruments, sometimes joining forces, and sometimes alternating phrases. The harmony is quite conservative for the most part, although an unexpected secondary dominant seventh chord on G sends the music off once again in the direction of C minor, and later B flat minor, as bassoon, oboe, and clarinet chase each other around with similar phrases. A new series of staccato 16th notes are heard, alternately, in all five instruments as the original tonic of E-flat major is re-established and a transformed and more chromatically sinuous version of the opening bars return, right before the introduction comes to an end on a dominant 7th chord. Here is the conclusion of the introduction. The introduction behind us, we now encounter the first subject of the exposition, played by the piano alone, in 3-4 time and marked allegro ma non troppo. It's a pleasant, if unremarkable, theme, beginning with an ascending major sixth interval and then gradually working its way down the scale in its first four-bar phrase, which ends on the dominant. The second phrase begins with another large ascending leap, a tenth this time, also working its way down a little more chromatically this time before edging slightly upward at the last minute. Here's the first eight bars of the first theme ending back on the tonic E-flat major chord. The next eight bars, which again begin with an ascending melodic leap, but this time introduce a new, repeated melodic idea, which is a little more harmonically adventurous than the first, especially the second four bars, which employ a chromatic, diminished seventh chord to move us briefly in the direction of C minor, although we end up back on the dominant chord just a couple of measures later. Then the winds take over as the entire 16-measure theme is repeated, the clarinet leading the way for the first eight measures with harmonic support from the other winds and piano, and with the oboe and clarinet providing the melody in octaves in the second eight measures. 
The last few measures are altered slightly to bring about a conclusion on the tonic rather than dominant chord. From that point, we hear a somewhat new idea in the clarinet against arpeggiated triplets in the piano, one which again begins with an ascending major sixth interval followed by a scampering scale-wise descent. This new idea is taken up in turn by the horn and oboe and eventually by the piano, which soon begins to develop it, at which point the listener is very likely to suspect that we've entered the modulatory transition. Here is the somewhat new idea leading into the modulatory transition extended just a little into the second subject. As you could hear, after the clarinet, horn, and oboe have each completed their turns with that initial lyrical phrase, the piano dominates the transition with rather busy 16th note passage work against occasional contributions from the winds. It faints first toward C minor, but then begins a leisurely movement toward the key of the dominant, B-flat major, repeating the final cadential phrase multiple times before reducing the texture down to a single line which leads gently into the second subject. The second subject, eight bars long in its initial statement, is more lyrical, sustained, and lacking the rhythmic variety of the first. It begins, like the first, quietly in the piano, but the texture is thinner, although a fragment of imitation is heard immediately in the left hand. The second four bars echo the first four, at least initially, but are more active harmonically, touching briefly on G minor and C minor before returning to B-flat major and ending on its dominant. After eight bars, the winds take up the theme, still softly and marked dolce, clarinet taking the lead. Against this, the piano introduces a new idea, leaping staccato octaves in the left hand against triplet figures in the right hand, and the texture becomes more varied and complex. The second phrase of the theme is here modified, extended to six measures, becoming more chromatic and introducing a dynamic swell. After the final four measures are repeated as a cadential tag, with the oboe assuming the main melodic interest, we cadence on B-flat major, and the closing section begins. The closing section is primarily a pianistic affair, and features a long series of staccato eighth-note figurations which crescendos eventually up to fortissimo, and is then followed by another, quieter, triplet-based figuration pattern. 
The wind instrument's contribution to all this is fairly minimal, until they begin to contribute rather enthusiastically right before the big cadence that introduces the codetta. The codetta is simple enough, the clarinet and bassoon joining in octaves to present a new, very pleasant little four-bar phrase that arpeggiates up the tonic triad and then moves down by step back to its starting point. This is repeated in octaves by the piano, which then switches to yet another triplet-based motive to take us to the end of the exposition. Here is just a little of the Codetta theme. So far we've discussed the exposition in segments, but it obviously makes more sense when you hear the entire flow. So, here is the entire exposition without repeat. The development section begins quite dramatically with a fortissimo rendering of the last four bars of the exposition, that same ascending triplet figure, but this time anchored on a G major chord. That might well suggest a modulation in the direction of C minor is imminent, but Beethoven doesn't want to go there quite yet, and the next four bars reproduce the same four up a step on A flat. 
but a series of chromatically ascending octaves marked with weak beats forzandi soon push us back to the G major chord, and Beethoven finally yields to the inevitable cadence on C minor. Right after, we hear the beginning of a new theme, first heard in the oboe. But it's not a completely new theme, and is somewhat reminiscent of the little codetta theme I pointed out earlier. Although it is by no means identical to it, and the fact that we hear it first in a minor key gives it a rather different inflection. Here's the beginning of the development section, including the introduction of the somewhat new theme. As you could hear, this theme, which includes a descending triadic motive not heard in the Codetta theme, is expanded and shared by all the winds against continuing triadic arpeggios in the piano as it moves from C minor to the original tonic of E flat major and beyond that to A flat major. At the end of my excerpt, you heard the return of the first subject in A flat major. And other than the key change, this appearance of the first subject is very much like the first. The winds are added to the mix sooner this time, and the piano takes on a more active role in echoing their motives. And more importantly, we're starting to modulate again, heading toward F minor, aided by sequential repetitions of the opening phrase of the second eight-bar section, and a new triplet figure in the piano marked by sforzando accents. After references to this melodic idea cease, we settle into a long, dominant prolongation, generally a quiet one although the piano does contribute an elaborately embellished ascending scale line at the end to signal the approaching recapitulation. Here's a little more of the development section, starting with the entrance of the winds and extending to the beginning of the recapitulation. The recapitulation follows standard procedures for the most part, sharing the second half of the first subject quite effectively between piano and winds. The second subject is shared primarily between oboe and clarinet, but the bassoon adds an effective countermelody along the way. 
The closing section and codera proceed as usual, but the coda plunges the key abruptly into D-flat major. The dominant in that key, A-flat major, is then skillfully transformed into a German sixth chord that resolves to a dominant seventh on B-flat, at which point a miniature cadenza is provided for the pianist. Following that cadenza and a return to the original tonic of E-flat major, we encounter something of a surprise, the theme from the modulatory transition. This theme is extended through a series of tonicizations and bolstered with several weak beats forzando accents before finally settling down on the dominant, right after the horn rips through a series of rapid arpeggios. The piano then introduces an ascending series of broken thirds, answered by ascending scale lines passed from bassoon to clarinet to oboe. But the piano again asserts its dominance with one of its most dynamic gestures in the entire movement, a long, fortissimo, ascending chromatic line that peaks on a held dominant chord. But we are not quite finished. The music quiets again, and the opening bars of the first subject are heard for the last time against a trilled E-flat high in the piano's range. The whole passage crescendos over eight measures to a triumphant final cadence. Here's an excerpt starting right before the return of the Codetta theme, heard first in the clarinet and then handed to the oboe. Moving on from there to the new coda, temporarily in D-flat major, the miniature cadenza for the pianist, and through to the end of the movement. The gorgeous second movement in B-flat major, 2-4 time, and marked Andante Cantabile, is in the form of a short rondo, A-B-A-C-A, -A -A, plus a coda. 
Watson describes the refrain theme, which begins piano and is marked dolce, as tender, and there is no better description. And yet the basic musical materials are, again, quite simple. The theme, which unfolds initially in eighth notes over a broken chord pattern in the piano left hand, begins on the fifth of the scale and descends gently to the tonic note in the second measure, which is then embellished gracefully by a pair of ornamental 32nd notes. In measure three, after a lead-in from a pair of ascending 32nd notes, the melodic idea is repeated, starting this time on the fourth scale degree after an ornamental grace note, and descending a fifth again, this time to the leading tone, the seventh scale degree, which is itself embellished by an even more elaborate 32nd note figure. The second four bars of the theme expand the melodic line up to a high D before the melody descends to a cadence on dominant. The winds then take over. A variant of the melody is assigned to the clarinet, with the oboe, bassoon, and even horn contributing lush countermelodies. The piano sustains the rhythmic energy with a series of 16th note Alberti bass patterns. After a total of 12 bars, there's a cadence on the tonic, and this is followed immediately by the first episode in G minor, the melody assigned to the oboe. Here is the second four bars of the refrain theme, and then the repetition of the whole theme by the winds, all four parts participating in a gently differentiated contrapuntal flow. For the first episode in G minor, which starts up right away after the cadence with no intervening transition, the materials are again quite basic, although the minor key and the gentle syncopations which recur in alternate measures provide this new theme with a distinctive personality. And the melody, especially as it later unfolds in a more embellished version from the bassoon in the key of B flat, provides rich material for variation. The melody is extended as we move away from B-flat major and, by way of some very clever chromatic motion in the piano bass line, in the direction of D minor. Having arrived in D minor, we don't spend much time there, moving first back to G minor and then toward F major, 
the winds all contributing, overlapping melodic phrases of great beauty. Here's an excerpt showing the modulation from B-flat major and containing one particularly effective modulatory phrase, heard first in the clarinet and shortly thereafter in the oboe and bassoon, the overlapping phrase creating some luxurious suspensions. The task here is to return to B-flat major for the second refrain, but as you'll hear, it's B-flat minor that shows its head first. Once B-flat major has been securely established, the piano returns with a highly embellished variation of the refrain melody, followed by a more conservative version of the tune from the combined winds. Here's an excerpt showing the end of the retransition section and a little of the second and somewhat varied refrain. The second episode in B-flat minor features an atmospheric new melody played by the horn, with only piano accompaniment. The horn melody manages to bring about a modulation to D-flat major after just three bars, and the rest of the winds enter in time to bring about a graceful cadence. The horn returns with a variant of its original melody, and the key finally makes its way back to B-flat major ably assisted by rapid arpeggios over a repeated dominant pedal in the piano. We'll hear the second episode featuring the horn and the retransition back to the final statement of the refrain theme.
The final version of the refrain theme is beautifully embellished and aided by elegant comments from the winds, with the clarinet and bassoon eventually taking charge of the melody. The coda adds some new effects of rhythm and articulation in the piano, along with some lovely lyrical contributions from the winds. At one point, the piano thunders to a huge fortissimo climax, only to die away demurely and conclude the movement with a series of delicate sixteenth notes in consort with bassoon, horn, clarinet, and oboe. We're going to move on now to the final movement, also a rondo, in E-flat major, 6-8 time, and marked allegro, ma non troppo. Here's the opening refrain. Sometimes described as a hunting song, it is perhaps not one of Beethoven's most inspired rondo themes, but an energetic and rather jolly one, although some of its jolliness seems to be very self-conscious and not just a little tongue-in-cheek. At the end of my excerpt, after the repeated cadential tag, you heard some of the first transition, which begins with a mock dramatic utterance by the winds and proceeds with a series of flowing 16th note scales in the piano with occasional wind contributions, and which takes us to the key of the dominant, where the first episode enters. This first episode does not offer much rhythmic variety, with the clarinet and bassoon rocking gently up and down the tonic and dominant triads in predictable fashion. There are some nice exchanges between the winds and piano, and eventually a second theme is introduced in the piano basically a two-bar phrase that begins by bounding upward an octave and a half to an accented note before gradually descending. This new theme is soon picked up by the winds, who toss it around cheerfully for a while, gradually making their way back down to the tonic for the return of the refrain. As you heard near the end of my excerpt, 
Right before the refrain theme returns, Beethoven provides another cadenza-like opportunity for the pianist after a fermata on the dominant chord. Ferdinand Ries reported that on the premiere of the piece in April 1797 with Beethoven as pianist, the composer took full advantage of the opportunity with a pianistic flight of fancy better suited to the cadenza of a true concerto. According to Ries, not all of Beethoven's fellow performers were pleased with the result. Immediately after the cadenza-like section, the refrain enters in more or less its original form in the original tonic of E-flat major and comes to a clear cadence in that key. However, it soon veers into E-flat minor, where a variant of the original refrain melody is presented and then developed at some length proceeding through a number of different keys along the way. The opening bars of the refrain echo back and forth among the winds, often in a mock dramatic manner, but the piano, as usual, is given the most active role, with darting arpeggios and cascading scales in abundance. This whole section, beginning with the shift to E-flat minor, behaves rather like a miniature development section, which suggests that the movement as a whole may be best described as a rondo sonata, or sonata rondo as it is alternately named, because the overall form to this point could be described as A, B, A, C, the C being the so-called miniature development section. Here's an excerpt beginning with the return of the refrain, the second A, going into the development section, the C section, and then returning at the end to the original tonic of E-flat major and the return of the refrain theme. The refrain returns in the piano, but with some new interjections from the winds, and the familiar Alberti bass pattern in the piano accompaniment picks up again when the winds take control of the melody. After a somewhat fragmented transition, a variant of the first episode returns, with its key elements intact, but given over even more to pianistic display than earlier. There are a few interesting new events along the way, including a dramatic descending line harmonized in the winds against a pounding dominant pedal in the piano's left hand. 
when the refrain makes its final appearance in what quickly becomes a coda, it is divided between winds and piano and somewhat fragmented, pausing for some tonally ambiguous sequential activity and never really gaining traction. The horn does get a rare opportunity to make its voice heard in some stirring horn calls in a passage that crescendos into a powerful conclusion. This is certainly an exuberant movement, and there is a lot of attractive concerto-like interaction between pianist and winds, as there is elsewhere in the work. Still, it may be, as Donald Tovey has suggested, that Beethoven's goals here could have been more ambitious. Although the slow movement is an extremely sensitive one with passages of great beauty, the first and last movements amount to little more than skillful presentations of conventional musical ideas. But perhaps it's unreasonable to expect more from Beethoven at this point in his career, given the genre. Works featuring multiple winds were usually associated, as I mentioned before, with the serenade tradition, that is, more social music than art music, unencumbered with the need to be deep or profound. The fact that this particular work exhibits concerto-like features so prominently might be seen as placing it in a special category. But in the end, this is a social work, albeit a very fine one, and Tavi's criticisms may well be misplaced. We'll now turn to another early work employing winds. This one, the Septet in E-flat major, for violin, viola, cello, and double bass, along with horn, bassoon, and clarinet. Opus 20, composed a couple of years later in 1799. Of course, this is very much a mixed work in terms of instrumentation and can't be thought of as dominated by the wind instruments in the way that Opus 16 is. Nevertheless, it's generally considered to be an important work, and Tovey, less than enthusiastic about the former composition, considered this one to be the most brilliant success of Beethoven's first period and perhaps the only work of Beethoven's which earned Haydn's unqualified and enthusiastic praise. The work has six movements, although we're not going to visit all of them. Movement one in three-four time begins with a dignified adagio introduction of 18 measures that presents its two most important motives in the first eight bars. The first comes from the opening measures and consists largely of a series of grace note embellished quarter notes that alternate with rapidly ascending and descending scale lines. The second is a short fragment of four notes that appears in various versions in all seven instruments and provides the rhythmic motive that also begins the allegro con brio section. Here's the beginning of the introduction showing these key initial motives.
The first subject of the sonata form, that begins at the Allegro con Brio section, is typical of the composer in this period, starting on the fifth of the tonic triad and gradually moving up the chord. Its rhythmic impetus provided by the three-note anacrusis or upbeat figure. The remainder of the theme is more lyrical, almost sensuous, its longer phrases employing non-harmonic tones quite effectively, especially the descending leap from a major seventh dissonance in measure five, and its sequential equivalent two bars later. After ten measures, the clarinet picks up the melody and brings it to a close on dominant. The modulatory transition begins by repeating the final three staccato notes, very reminiscent of the opening bars of the Adagio introduction, but now at a much quicker tempo, of course. This is followed by a wonderful little passage, a series of rapid plagal subdominant Teutonic cadences, which summon up Mozart's opera buffa style. Then the second subject appears in B-flat major, somewhat simpler and more languid in style, shared between the strings and winds. After eight bars, it yields to a new thematic idea, one seemingly based on a figure heard near the end of the first half of the first subject, now alternating with swift descending scale passages. Here is the modulatory transition going into the second subject. After a brief transition passage, we encounter the closing section, based on a short repeated staccato phrase, and shortly after that, the codetta, the opening three notes of which refer back to the first subject. Here's the codetta going into the cadence on the dominant that ends the exposition. After employing the opening bars of the first subject to build up a dominant seventh on B-flat, the development section takes a surprising turn to G major, later heard as the dominant of C minor. Here, the codetta theme is the first to be exploited. The theme appears first in the clarinet, but the horn also gets a fairly rare solo opportunity. As the key moves to A-flat major, motives from the opening of the adagio section appear and for the next several measures, alternate with the codetta theme, 
as the key moves to F minor and then in the direction of B flat major in preparation for the recapitulation. In the recapitulation, the first subject is heard in its entirety in the violin, but is cut off as it starts to repeat in the clarinet, and a feint is made toward the key of the subdominant A flat major. At that point, a new mini development section occurs, with the descending scale motive from the codetta popping up alternately in clarinet, bassoon, and horn, while cello and double bass very effectively exploit a motive derived from the first subject. The motivic references are getting rather dense at this point, and the rhythmic intensity is impressive, although the dynamic level remains low for the most part. And it comes almost as an anticlimax when the second subject arrives, now in tonic. Closing section and codetta arrive in due course, and the coda features a noble new theme played by the horn, which employs motives from the opening measure of the first subject and an offbeat accompaniment figure that also played an important role in the first subject. The new horn theme is then doubled by the clarinet, as the motives from the first subject are now taken up also by the violin, as the key heads toward A-flat major. After a cadence in the new key, the motives from the opening of the adagio appear yet again, and we head to the final passage of the movement, which returns to the original tonic and is highlighted by a clever new motive with a prominent trill heard first in the viola, but quickly taken up by the violin. This new motive carries us briskly to the fortissimo conclusion. We'll hear an excerpt beginning where the codetta theme is being recapitulated, leading to the new horn theme, and then to the final measures of the movement. So this movement is not without its formal novelties, and there is more going on here than may initially strike the ear. We'll move on now to the second movement, in A-flat major, 9-8 time, and marked Adagio Cantabile. The harmonies are again restricted to the most conventional of patterns for this slow movement, but the melody is one of great sensitivity and beauty. Various writers have commented to the effect that this septet perhaps more than any of Beethoven's early works, may show the fruits of his study of the Italian bel canto vocal style with Salieri. Certainly, the melodic embellishments are often quite vocal in nature and are applied here as effectively as in any other early work. 
But Beethoven's melodies, especially the first, demonstrate not only the elegant lines and the sense of longing that is so often the goal of the bel canto style, but also that air of nobility so often associated with the composer's slow movements. The main melodic idea, eight bars in all, is presented immediately in the clarinet. The accompaniment is simple, the only significant rhythmic activity appearing in the violin, with the viola, cello, and double bass mainly restricted to downbeats. When the violin assumes the melody, the texture becomes slightly more elaborate. The viola accompaniment patterns now proceed in 16th notes, while clarinet and bassoon combine to contribute a restrained countermelody. The second half of the theme, presented by the clarinet and later bassoon, merges into the modulatory transition, and eventually a modulation to the dominant is brought about. The second theme, which is heard first in the violin and accompanied largely in block chords by the lower strings, is more active rhythmically and marked by some sharp dynamic contrasts. Its initial phrase is echoed by the winds in a slightly varied version, as is its second. Then, after a passage featuring an ornate flow of sixteenth notes from the violin, we encounter a new theme, still in E-flat major, that serves as a closing section. Gentle sforzando accents continue to abound, often on the weak beats, until the exposition trails off quickly to end pianissimo.
There are some interesting events in both the development section and recapitulation, but we're going to move on now to the other movements. Skipping the third movement, Minuetto, for a moment, let me comment briefly on the others. The fourth movement, a theme in variations, develops a march-like little theme with great imagination and is of particular interest for its many rhythmic syncopations and variants of other sorts. The scherzo, the fifth movement, is frolicsome and clever, with a trio that features a graceful little melody played high in the cello's range. The final movement is the most ambitious of the lot. It begins rather gloomily with an andante introduction in the form of a minor key funeral march. But given the nature of the preceding movements, you know that Beethoven isn't going to keep this somber tone up for very long. True to form, he soon breaks into a major key presto section that begins another, if somewhat abbreviated, sonata form. There are some novelties in this sonata form, to be sure, not the least of which is the introduction in the development section of a new hymn-like melody unfolding in half notes over pizzicato strings in quarter notes, which leads, rather unpredictably, to a florid cadenza for the violin right before the recapitulation begins. But while it's an impressive movement, we're going to close this episode with a much simpler one, the third movement, Tempo di Minuetto, which sports a very familiar melody. In fact, the movement begins by quoting the first eight bars of one of Beethoven's most famous little tunes, originally written in 1795 for his sonata, sometimes referred to as a sonatina, in G major, opus 49, number 2, which has graced the elementary piano books of countless generations of students. The accompaniment provided by the lower strings is initially as simple as the melody itself. The texture becomes slightly more elaborate for the second four bars of the melody, with clarinet and bassoon contributing a modest countermelody in octaves that echoes the dotted rhythms of the jaunty little tune. The second half of the minuetto section presents 12 bars of a theme featuring the violin that begins in C minor in a somewhat military mood for the first four bars. But although some of the motives are repeated in the next four, the mood becomes somewhat more coquettish as we move to B-flat major and the theme is enriched by brief but lovely chromatic countermelodies from the clarinet and bassoon. After this section concludes on the dominant, the original melody returns, returning the key to E-flat major for the end of the section. Here is the second part of the minuet. As is often the case, the trio section initially thins out the texture. In the first section, a new, very simple melody is introduced, pianissimo, in the strings, while horn and clarinet 
alternate descending and ascending arpeggios. The second four bars introduce a brief crescendo and some sforzando accents before the section comes quietly to a close on the dominant. The second section of the trio elaborates on the ideas of the first, before concluding on the tonic and sending us back to the minuetto section. There is so much that is charming about this septet that it's no wonder that Haydn and Tuffy both expressed their firm approval of it. But I think the Opus 16 quintet, which relies even more heavily on the wind instruments, has as much to offer, especially the wonderful slow movement. That's all for this episode. For the next, we'll begin to look at the six string quartets of Opus 18, very important works, not only for Beethoven's development, but in and of themselves. <laughs>